Good morning, church family. I have to thank the choir again. The best part is I get to hear that special music twice. I love that song, I'll Fly Away, and especially, I brought this out in first service as well, uh, the phrase, God's celestial shore. Now, the shoreline for me is uh, very meaningful growing up in Australia. It's where we spent, you know, all of our summer days, more or less, uh, very close to the beach, and we were able to go there and to enjoy that. And there's something about the roar of the waves and and how they swell up. And my wife can tell you that my favorite thing to do is to go swimming when the water is warm enough. Uh, and uh, the, the bigger the waves, the, the happier I am. It's, it's such a pleasure. And when I go back to Australia to visit my family and I go to the beach and I see the scene, you know, the, the roar of the waves, the sand as far as the eye can see, beautiful sunny day, blue sky, not a cloud in the sky. I think, oh, this is, this is home. This is what it feels like. Yet I do wonder, what does God's celestial shore look like? What does it sound like? It's going to be magnificent. And I know that when I get there and when I see it, I'll have that same feeling, even more so than I do here. Like, ah, oh, this is home. This is one. I know that many of you long for that experience as well, and we will have it, for Jesus is coming soon. I want to give a short testimony uh, before I get into the message today, and that is... Uh, some of you may have already known, others of you may not know, but I am a PhD student at the seminary, and from the last Monday of January to the last Monday of February, I have been sitting my comprehensive exams, five exams always taking place on Monday, eight hours each uh, for each exam, and I just received confirmation this last week that your prayers and mine have been answered, and I have passed all five exams, and I am praising the Lord this morning because so many times throughout the whole process, not just in preparation, but also in the very taking of the exams, I felt at times that God was bringing thoughts into my mind, bringing them back to remembrance, the things which I had studied just at the time when I needed them most, and I know that He blessed, um, blessed me tremendously throughout those exams. Let's start with a word of prayer. And uh, then we will get into the story of Elijah and Elisha, for we cannot understand truly the calling of Elisha without understanding a little bit about Elijah's mission and task. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you to thank you so much for how good you are to us continually, Lord. Despite our unfaithfulness, despite our weakness, Lord, you are faithful, you are always strong. Father, we come before you and we pray that you would be with us here, that you would send your spirit to be in our hearts and in our minds, that we would be able to grasp the lessons which you have recorded for us in your word, particularly as we look at the story of Elijah and Elisha this morning. I pray in a special way that you would also be with those who are not with us today, the, those who are on the mission trip in El Salvador. Please be with them, prosper them, bless them, and may we even though we are separated, be joined together on this, your holy day, in worshiping you. I pray, Lord, to thank you again for how good you have been in my life personally. Please give me the right words to speak this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Elijah comes on the scene for the first time. If we go to the book of 1 Kings chapter 17, we're not going to read too much of Elijah's life, but I will quiz you on it as uh, a good teacher would. 
So what is one of the first messages that Elijah comes to bring to king? Who was the king at the time? Ahab. Ahab. Very good. So what is his declaration or proclamation to King Ahab? There will be no rain. Okay, for how long? Okay, three years, three and a half years. He doesn't actually say that. What does he say? There'll be no rain until I say so. Okay, until my word speaks. It happens to be that it was three, three and a half years until Elijah uh, comes again to King Ahab. And of course, in uh, between that time, we're going to draw lessons. As we go through this story of Elijah and particularly Elisha's call, and his request, we're going to bring out some of these uh, lessons in detail, because I believe it's significant for us today. But uh, uh, Elijah then goes from where? When there's a drought. He goes to the brook, Cherub, okay. And he goes, after that dries up, where? To the widow of Zarephath, okay. He goes there, and what does he do that is of... Particularly, well, there's two things that he did that were very special for her. The first was continual food. Okay, that's what I'm hearing on this corner. So this side will get the the second one. Continual food, right? She was basically last bit of oil, last bit of flour. And he said, if you make it for me first, you won't run out of food. And that's exactly what happened, right? She made it for him and the oil and the flour didn't cease until the famine was over. But what else did he do this side for the widow? raised her son. That's absolutely right. Okay. He was sick, unwell. He passed away and Elijah resurrected him. Now we keep going. Uh, Of course, chapter 18 is probably the climax of Elijah's ministry where he goes to Mount. Wow, that was weak. He went to Mount Carmel. Okay. And there was a test there given, right? Two altars. The prophets of Baal were given one. He was given one for the Lord, and the test was set. The God that answers by fire is the true God. A kind of stirring up of Israel. Now, up to this time, the, the worship of Baal and idolatry had been so prevalent. In fact, we read a little bit later on that Elijah, how does he see himself? He sees himself as what? The only one left, okay? It's been so widespread that he sees himself as faithful in all of Israel, yet God tells him that this is the case or not the case? Not the case. Okay, very good. But here we have the the victory on Mount Carmel. Uh, The God of the Bible answers by fire and the prophets of Baal are slaughtered there, 300 of them. There is quite a, you know, that's quite a decisive blow. When, When people who are misusing their power are gone in an instant, that's quite a significant blow to Baal and the enemy, the idolatry which was prevalent in that time. Not only that though, the other thing that happened was that a lot of people were watching that day, weren't they? This, this uh, challenge between uh, whether Baal would answer by fire, or whether the Lord of, of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob would answer by fire, wasn't done just between the prophets and Elijah. People were around watching. They were curious to see. And of course, when the God of their fathers answered, and not the God of all the idolaters and the one who sat above all of them, they had to wonder and they had to say, well, maybe the God of our fathers is the true God. And many, in fact, the spirit of prophecy tells us, started turning back to God. They started asking questions. 
We haven't heard about him for so long. What can you tell us about him? They must have inquired of the priest. They must have wanted to talk to Elijah as well. Of course, Jezebel, upon hearing what happened, didn't quite like Elijah very much. And Elijah, even though he had this great mountaintop experience, uh, literally decided that he would run. But what is something else significant that happens at the end of the Carmel, uh, Mount Carmel story? Elijah prays for what? Rain. How many times? Seven times. Okay. And God answers with rain. So now it's been three and a half years since there's been rain. And under this context, you know, as Elijah is traveling, because God gives him at the end of his run from, you know, he prays for the rain, the rain comes. Jezebel hears what happened. She puts out the threat on Elijah's life. Elijah gets scared and runs. And God now meets him as he's, as he's running away and hiding. He talks to Elijah in uh, chapter 19, and he gives him some tasks. And this is where he reassures him that he is not the only one, despite what he may feel or what seems so to him. So he is, I'm reading here from uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse uh, 15, let's say. The Lord said to him, go return the way of the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, anoint Hazael as king over Syria. This is interesting to me because God here is sending a prophet of Israel to go and anoint a foreign king. Was Syria part of Israel? No. And yet God sends him. I wonder what Hazael must have thought when he showed up to his doorstep and said that the God of Israel anoints you king over Syria. Must have made for an interesting conversation. But this wasn't the only thing he was to do. He was also to go and to anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. So this seems to be like, oh, there's someone else who is faithful. And of course... Um, God that gives him in uh, verse 18, the reassurance, you are not alone. How many are there who haven't bowed the knee to Baal? 7,000, of course, Elijah, you are not the only one. So you can imagine as Elijah is traveling now, as he's left, he's gone by the way of Damascus. He is seeking Elisha. On his way, he has anointed two kings. And the scenery around him seems very different. It's rained. Things are green. <laughs> they probably haven't seen so much green for a long time. Uh, I believe God was, was meaning this as a lesson to him of, of a time of renewal. You know, I love it. One thing I do love about spring here as opposed to Australia is that beautiful young green color that comes out in the grass and in the leaves when it's first sprouting up. We don't get that in Australia because in Australia, well, at least where I'm from in Australia, probably further south where it gets cold and the trees lose their leaves, it does happen. But where I'm from, it stays green all year round. So it's just dark green, which is beautiful, but it's never that living, that fresh kind of green. And it is beautiful to behold. And I can imagine Elijah going by and seeing this beautiful scene as a reminder that God is still working with his people. There is still hope. Things are not lost. It is not just the desert. And of course, he goes there. And now we're going to bring out some some interesting points from this lesson. Verse 19, it says, So he departed from there and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. 
Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. Question. What did we say just took place for three and a half years? A drought, right? No water. Is it difficult to survive at a time where there's no food? Is it difficult for animals to survive when there is no food? Is 12 yoke of oxen a little amount of animal or a lot amount of animal? That's a lot. I mean, a yoke of oxen typically, you know, consisted of two, right? And usually in pairs. So if he was with the 12th, that means there are 11 other oxen that are plowing the fields there. So 11 other laborers who are no doubt working plus the 24 oxen who are there. This would take a substantial amount of money to preserve for three and a half years when the growing time was not, let's say, very advantageous. There's no water, can't really plow. So did Elisha come from a very poor family? No, he came from a very wealthy family. In fact, the spirit of prophecy in uh, Patriarchs and Prophets lets us know that Elisha's father was a very, very wealthy farmer. Um, He had a lot of resources and the fact that he was able to maintain his wealth, he wasn't just wealthy before the drought came, but he was wealthy even throughout the drought and after the drought tells, testifies at least to how much wealth they must have had. Now, let me just read a few lines here uh, of the description here between Elijah and Elisha that the Spirit of Prophecy writes in Patriarchs and Prophets. She writes that Elijah had been God's instrument for the overthrow of gigantic evils. The idolatry which supported by Ahab and the heathen Jezebel had seduced the nation had given a dis- and Elijah had given them a decided check. Baal's prophets had been slain and the whole people of Israel had been deeply stirred and many were returning to the worship of God. As Elijah's successor, Elisha, by careful, patient instruction, must endeavor to guide Israel in safe paths. His association with Elijah, the greatest prophet since the days of Moses, quite a line there, prepared him for the work that he was soon to take up alone. During these years of united ministry, Elijah, from time to time, was called upon to meet flagrant evils with stern rebuke. When Ahab seized neighbor's vineyard, it was the voice of Elijah that prophesied his doom and the doom of his house. And when Ahaziah, after the death of his father Ahab, turned from the living God to Baal Zebub, the God of Ekron, it was Elijah's voice that was heard once more in earnest protest. Another thing which Elijah did was he reestablished the schools of the prophets. Does anyone know who established them for the first time? Samuel. Very good. And three of them are mentioned uh, when we make our way to Second uh, King, Kings chapter 2. Three of them are mentioned just before we get the request of Elisha, uh, Gilgal, Bethel, and Jericho as schools which Elijah visited the day before, well, the day of that he was to be taken. So, question. Did Elijah say anything to Elisha when he came by him? What did he do? He put his mantle on him and then kept walking. We know he kept walking because the very next verse, in verse 20, says, And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. 
So it took him a while, but the spirit of prophecy tells us that the spirit of God impressed Elisha as to the meaning of the act. So there he is. Imagine someone goes, walks past you, you're working in your office, they take off their coat, you know, mantle, they give it to you, and then they leave. What would you think? But Elisha is instructed, he understands what this means, come and follow after me. So he leaves his oxen and he runs after Elijah and notice his request. It says, please let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will. What words does he say? Follow you. And he said to him, Elijah speaking now, go back again for what have I done to you? We, we may read this as kind of like, is he, is he rebuking him? Is he telling him he shouldn't do that? No. What is Elijah saying to Elisha? You're still free to choose. You don't have to follow me. The call has come for sure. But what have I done to you? I just gave you my mantle. You can come and follow after me if you want to. But God is not forcing you to do so. Count the cost. You have a family who loves you. You have wealth. You have work. Do you really want to come and follow me? Is the life of a prophet very certain? It's certain in the sense that they always have a mission for God. But it's not, you know, tomorrow you may be rebuking a king. The next day you may be running for your life. I mean, it's not like you're very stable. You, you go where God tells you to go. Elisha, are you sure you want to follow me? You can go back. And Elisha counts the cost. He goes back. He says goodbye to his family. In fact, we're told there in verse 21, he turns back. He took the yoke of oxen. He slaughtered them, boiled their flesh using the, the oxen's equipment. And he gave it to the people and they ate. And then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. Became his what? Servant. Okay, so follow along with me here. You have a family that loves you. You have good work. You have lots of money. You're a very capable person. And now you go with the prophet Elijah and you become his servant. You see, if there's one thing I, want, I don't want you to forget out of, out of this whole sermon, even though you may forget everything else, it's this sentence. The call to service is the call for sacrifice. The call to service is the call for or to sacrifice. And this is precisely what Elisha did. He became his servant. In fact, the spirit of prophecy here tells, says something so interesting. I was amazed. She says, it was no great work that was at first required of Elisha. Commonplace duties still constituted his discipline. He is spoken of as pouring water on the hands of Elijah, his master. Water on the hands of his master. Like, it's amazing. But notice that the call for service, what Elisha sacrificed was not just his time and his money, which is often right. What, can, what are some things that we can think of? I've mentioned two, but what else do we give today when we talk about service? We say we should sacrifice for God's cause. Time, okay, that was mentioned. Money was mentioned. Talents, okay. Sorry? Future. Okay, future progeny. 
could come to some. Sorry? Our will, okay, getting to more of it. What about our energy as well? It's not just that we give up our time, but we want to be involved in the work, not just show up for the work, right? There's a difference between being engaged in the work and merely being present for the work. So all of these things are given. Now, notice Elijah. Was Elisha, sorry, a capable man? Did he have talents? Yes. I mean, his father was manager of No doubt he learned a thing or two from his father. He was out there working and plowing in the fields. He knew how to do farming. He had so many talents. And yet he gives all of that up to follow Elijah. And Elijah has him pouring water for his hands. Now, what qualifications does someone need to pour water on the hands of someone else? Humility, for sure. But I mean, can a five-year-old child do this? Sure, if you have two feet and two arms and you can hold a jug of water, you can pour it for someone else to wash their hands. Yet Elisha, do we hear him complaining? Do we hear him saying, oh man, you know, I have to serve Elijah. It was better in my father's house when I could run the farm. You don't hear any word of complaint from him. You see, the call to service being a call for sacrifice doesn't just mean all those other things that we mentioned. Money, time, our energy, our effort, whatever the future may bring, our own will, our own desires. It also means perhaps doing some task that is far below your current capabilities. Think about that for a while. That humbleness is extremely important when it comes to service. You don't just serve in what you're good at although God needs people who are very proficient and good at doing what they do, but it's not exclusively that. It's more than that. It's lower than that. So he becomes his servant. And then we have a few more stories in the middle. We won't go through those of Elijah constantly. We've mentioned already, anytime the kings did wickedly, Elijah was the man uh, whom God sent and Elisha, no doubt, with him to rebuke these kings and to tell them what the judgment or what the consequences of their choices will bring on the whole house of Israel. But then we move here to Second Kings chapter 2. And now we see, I'm going to start reading from verse 1. It says, It came to pass when the Lord was about to take up Elijah into heaven, by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. This is where the first school was located. And Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please. The Lord has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Interesting. He wants them to be quiet. Why does he want them to be quiet? Doesn't want to draw attention? Okay. The spirit of prophecy tells something very interesting. She said that Elijah was not shown by God that he would be taken away. It was revealed to the prophets at the various schools and to Elisha. So Elijah only knew that he was going to be translated to heaven by the word of someone else, not because God gave him a vision or dream. It was by faith that even Elijah had to believe this. 
It was not given to him directly. And yet, so Elijah asked Elijah, stay here. I have to go on to Bethlehem. What does Elijah say? Not a chance. Why does Elisha not want to leave Elijah? He wants to be there when he leaves, but what else? What was the children's story about? What, what was the lesson of those ducks that didn't have children that year who went by to protect the younger ones? Why we should be thankful for parents, for godly mentors. You see, when Elijah was leaving, Elisha realizes, I'm the next guy. <laughs> I need to learn as much as I can from him. I'm not leaving him. Any extra word of wisdom that he has, any lesson that he has to teach me, anything that he tells me that I should be careful about in the future, I need to be there. I need to hear that. And so he's saying, no matter what happens, as God lives and as, as you live, I am not departing from you today. Part of the reason I think he tells the others, keep quiet, is because he doesn't want to hear them speak. He wants to hear Elijah speak. Yes, I know it's happening. Don't worry. Keep quiet. I want to learn as much as I can from him. If you know he's going away, should you really be talking about this? Or should you be asking him more questions? This is what Elisha's perspective was like. And so again, we have the same. He goes, Elijah says to Elisha, stay here for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. But Elisha says to him again the same words, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came and what did they say? The exact same thing. Of course, Elisha replies in exactly the same way. And then Elijah says that he has to go on towards the Jordan and asks him to remain. Several times he is testing Elisha's, I'm not sure quite to say it, not his endurance, but his faithfulness to the call with which he was given. Remember, this was a choice that Elisha made way back when. Elijah came and put his mantle on him. He could have gone back. And yet Elisha, being faithful to his call, says, I am not leaving. And so they go, they pass uh, through the Jordan River on dry ground. And then we come to verse 9. And it says, So it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I may do for you before I am taken away from you. Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Now, question. It's not often in the Bible that you have God or prophets asking someone else, a third party, what can I do for you? It does happen from time to time. One notable example that we can think of is who? Solomon, okay? So God came to Solomon and said, ask what I shall give you as he just became king. And what does Solomon ask for? Wisdom. Do you think this story may have lingered in the mind of Elisha? Remember, he came from a faithful family. His whole household, the Spirit of Prophecy says, was not only wealthy, but they were part of the 7,000 who had not bowed or worshipped Baal. They talked about the stories of the Bible, of their history. This was known to Elisha. And now at a time where Elijah is leaving and he says, ask me for something. I want to do something for you. Elijah has the same temptation that King Solomon could have had. They could have asked for wealth, could have asked for fame, could have asked for a, a sure guarantee that he will not die an unnatural death, which, you know, if you're in a prophetic office, you may want that guarantee. Uh, he could have asked for so many things. And yet, what does he ask for? 
a double portion of the spirit that's on you. And what is Elijah's reply? The very first words of chapter, uh, verse 10, sorry. He says, you have asked a hard thing. Now, to be honest, it was in reading this verse that I decided to make the message around the story of Elisha because I'm curious. I wanted to know, what does that mean? When I first read it, I said, why is that a hard thing? Is it a hard thing for God to do that? No, presumably God does not have limitations upon himself. It's just as easy for God to give a double portion, a triple portion, a quadruple portion of his spirit, should God be willing to do so. And God is always willing to give more of his spirit, to give more of his strength, to give more wisdom to those who ask of him. In fact, we're repeatedly told throughout scripture to continually pray, to continually ask for God for all kinds of things. And I know that during my exams, I was praying the prayer of James chapter 1, which said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all what? Liberally. He does not withhold. So why is it a hard thing? Why does Elijah tell Elisha, this is a hard thing? Sorry? It wasn't his to give, for sure. It was not his to give, but it's not difficult from the perspective of God to give either, and no doubt God is willing, so therefore there must be some other reason that this was a hard thing. Of course, he mixes this, uh, this unusual saying that it's a hard thing with the fact that nevertheless, if you see me go, you will have it, and if you don't, then you will not. So it happened that as they continued, I'm, I'm reading on from verse 11, and as they were talking... It says that suddenly the, the chariot of fire appeared, the, the horses of fire separated the two of them. Elijah was taken up in the whirlwind and his mantle being left over fell to Elisha. And we read the rest of the scripture reading that he takes it and he does the exact same act. Although notice what Elisha says when he strikes the water. He says there in verse 14, he says as he strikes the water, where is the God of Elijah? This was not a, a, a kind of, a, what we would say, a, a agnostic kind of view. Like, I don't know. But he's saying, did really Elijah's words come to, come to pass? Is Elijah's spirit really going to be with me? Where is that God? Notice that throughout their ministry, all of the rebukes, all of the miracles which have been done are being done through Elijah, not through Elisha. This is the first recorded miracle we have Elisha performing. And it is immediately after Elijah's translation to heaven. But let's take a look at a few verses in the New Testament. A double portion of the Spirit. Let's turn to Acts chapter 1. I want to ask... A simple question, and that is, why is the Spirit given in any circumstance? What's the purpose? What's the reason? Is the Spirit given just, no doubt we could list many reasons, but one in particular, I'm going to take a look at a few texts here, we'll look at them together, but the Spirit, as far as I read in all of the Bible, is never given for the sake of the Spirit just being given. So that Elisha can say when he goes back through those schools of the prophets, hey, I've got double the portion of Elijah. I'm twice the man he was. Is that why the Spirit was given to him in a double portion? 
Surely not. So then why is the Spirit given? Let's go and hear Jesus' words in the New Testament in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be what? Witnesses to me in Jerusalem and to Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Let's go to chapter 2, verse 4. Acts chapter 2, verse 4, and it says, And when they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to... Then they were, sorry... Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So what is it that happened when the Spirit came on them? They spoke. There was power. They spoke in other tongues. There is this notion of doing something external. There is a testimony, a witness which is given. Let's take a look at one more passage in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and it's talking about spiritual gifts here, uh, beginning in verse 7. But each one of us, sorry, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, what is the gift which Christ promised to his followers? The Holy Spirit. So then we read a little bit later down, and starting from verse 11, it says, He gave some to be apostles some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And what's the purpose? Okay, so we have there in verse 12, for the equipping of the saints of the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So why is the Spirit given? How would you summarize those ministries, the ministry of being an apostle, of being a prophet, of being an evangelist, of being a pastor and a teacher? To equip, yes. But are they not ministries of service, of sacrifice? You see, if the Holy Spirit, sorry, not the Holy Spirit, if God sends the Holy Spirit so that those who receive it would serve Him more, then what are we really asking for when we pray, give us more of your spirit? So that we can serve him more. Now, what was the sentence that we talked about before? If the call to service is the call for sacrifice and the Holy Spirit is given for service, then more of the Holy Spirit means more what? sacrifice kind of like in the mathematical equation if a equals b and b equals c then a equals c think about that because oftentimes we pray oh lord give us the holy spirit we want the outpouring of the holy spirit don't we this is a good thing to ask for we're told to ask for it in the bible but do we know what we're asking do we know that what we're asking for is a hard thing not because God cannot give more of the Spirit, but because of what that would cost us to receive more of it. Are you sure you want it? This is kind of the call which Elijah was saying to Elisha when he said, you can go back, what have I done to you? Faithful service requires sacrifice. And again, we mentioned it's 
Time, yes. It's money, yes. But it's also performing duties which may be way below what you are currently capable of. And if we are to receive more of God's Spirit, then it means we are to sacrifice more in time, in money, and in a whole host of tasks which will one day fit us, I believe, for a higher work. For surely we know, and the spirit of prophecy brings this out, we all know this principle that he who is faithful in least will also be faithful in much. And this principle we definitely see uh, being illustrated in the life and in the service of Elisha. He was faithful in pouring water on the hands of Elijah. He will be faithful when God needs to send him somewhere else, when God needs him to perform certain miracles. Now, going back to Second Kings there, the first few chapters, Second Kings chapter 4 is a very interesting story. We talked about uh, one of the other things that I'd like to see was, okay, so Elisha, did he see Elijah go up? And he asked for a double portion and Elijah said, if you see me, you'll get it. So how do we know whether he got it or not? I want to know that. So I went back and I didn't count exactly because I wasn't quite sure how to count them. Maybe this is a future project for me to do. But when you want to compare the miracles which both prophets, Elijah and Elisha, actually performed, which are recorded in the Bible, who do you think performed more miracles? Elisha did. Now, presumably, there may have been more miracles which Elijah did, but they weren't recorded. And Elisha perhaps did more miracles. But out of the ones which are actually recorded, Elisha did far more. Not only did he do more, but in chapter 4, we have this interesting story of the Shunammite woman and her husband, who every time Elisha went past, they asked him, come in to stay with us. And they would give him a meal. And eventually, because he was traveling by their way so much, they said, let's build an extra room. They didn't have children. They said, let's build us an extra room. When he comes, he may rest. He may lodge with us and then he can be on his way. And Elisha does this several times and finally he says, you have shown me so much kindness, what can I do for you? And he hears from his servant Gehazi that they have no children. So what does he tell them? This time next year when I come by, you will have a child, you will have a son. And she tells him, don't pull my leg, don't joke about such things, don't do that. And Elijah says, well, you'll, Elisha says, you'll see. And sure enough, he comes a year later and there's a child. What happens to that child? Gets sick and it dies. And what does Elisha do? He also raises up that child. The same thing which Elijah did. But there's a difference. When Elijah went to the widow of Zarephath, she already had a son. Do you see how his miracle is already showing in the, in the capacity that it's greater? Because not only did he predict the coming of the son, but he also raised the son. Whereas Elijah just... These are little cues, I'm just saying, but ways in which we can really see that God was with Elisha in a double measure than he was with Elijah. Not that God is playing favorites here or anything, but that the request that Elisha made actually came to pass. But it's a hard thing because Elisha's heart must have been full of much, much service and much, much sacrifice. And that is what I believe Elijah was saying in his words, you have asked a hard thing, not for God, for yourself. You've asked a hard thing for yourself. Are you sure you're ready to sacrifice that much, to serve that much, that the Spirit would be with you twice as much as it was with me? And this is the question that I want to leave you with today as well. We can talk about many other lessons that come out. Surely we did not exhaust it here. But sacrifice is not comfortable. 
Sacrifice is not convenient. And we already talked about the fact that it's not just money and time, although that is included into it. It is the performance of duties far below our current capabilities. Are we willing to perform even those? Are we willing when we receive a call to do things which are inconvenient? When we pray, Lord, send your Holy Spirit upon us, give us more of your spirit, do we know what we're asking? This is a prayer which, and, and a request which I have to make to myself as well. Do I know what I'm asking for when I pray these words? This is a decision which each of us must make. We ought to live faithfully, of course, with everything that we have. But Elisha was not an unfaithful man before the call came to him. And presumably, if he had decided to go back, God would have called someone else. Elisha would not have been a sinner if he returned home and if he continued plowing the fields and he continued being faithful to God. But there is a difference between, and I believe the closer we are approaching the end of time, we need God's Spirit more because the task that's before us for the kingdom of God is so much greater. So much greater and it needs men and women who are willing to sacrifice more, who are willing to serve more, who are willing to be inconvenienced. So this is the call for you and me this morning. How much do you want the Holy Spirit? I hope that we still want it. I certainly do. Our prayer should be that of David in Psalm 139. Search me. Uh, how does it go? Seek me and search me and see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me. I want to read it word for word because it is so powerful. Psalms 139. It's the last verse there. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. That's my prayer. How about yours? Amen. Let's uh, stand as we sing our closing hymn, which is hymn number... 375, work for the night is coming.
Let's bow our heads for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the stories which you not only inspired the Bible writers to write, the prophets of old, but you preserved throughout history so that we could learn the lessons contained for us today. Father, I pray that you would give us more of a spirit of service, a spirit of sacrifice for you and your kingdom. For Lord, there is nothing in this world, no matter how much we acquire, that is going to be of any worth in the kingdom to come, except our characters and except the things that we do, the way we use the abilities you have given us here to reach out and to win as many as possible for your kingdom. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to strive with us, that you would continually bring to our minds the, the need for you in our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would be with our family, our friends, that you would be with us wherever we may find ourselves, whether it be in the workplace, at the, at the store, perhaps on a holiday or vacation. Give us the right words to speak at the right time so that you may be lifted up in the eyes of those who may not know you yet and that their love for you may grow. We pray, Lord, that we would have the same kind of response that Elisha did and was willing to give up everything to follow the call which you gave him through Elijah, very unlike the rich young ruler in the New Testament who, when the call came to him to give up everything, went away sorrowful. Help us to have Elisha's reaction and not the rich young ruler. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.